You know, that was the idea. We're going to make some decisions as to the nature of news and what our readers need to know. And, um, and that bar is not one of uh, every day something's expected no matter what. And, and Walter was sort of saying that he felt the change happened around the time that Reagan, so much starts with Reagan. It's really astonishing. And, um, the, uh, uh, you know, with, uh, with Deaver and a new imputation, a new R&D lab of thinking about how life in the public realm is handled. Now, Reagan obviously had all sorts of various, you know, theatrical gifts, and they were not sure what to do with them, uh, frankly. And, um, but, you know, Deaver sort of said, wait, wait, wait a second. You know, there's 22 and a half minutes every night on the evening news, then three networks, just. And uh, they need pictures, right? So anything the president does is probably going to draw cameras. Well, let him do anything. You know, go to a factory gate, slap someone on the back, walk the dog. What was the dog's name? Fallon? No, that was your That's right. The, um, and it would be in the news. And, of course, you see we in the dirty fingernail world of newspaperings starting to bend. Bend toward the power of the image. Now, obviously, the 20th century has been an extraordinary century for the moving image. But all of a sudden, it started to create a new set of effects. You know, Reagan got that, and his handlers especially got that. Um, of course, what, what builds from this is is what I call the, the cult message. This notion of every day there is a message. There is a crafted offering. Uh, and everybody should have their script, their playbook. And um, it was a real challenge for us uh, who walked around with pads. Uh, because what grew from this was this idea that access. And this, this of course, uh, I mean, I think the Clinton era was sort of a funny period. I mean, I, I was reporting for the Wall Street Journal in those days, and, and you actually had pretty good access during the Clinton period. You know, you could get folks all night on the phone. Of course, no one slept, so you could, you know, there's no, no assistance there at four in the morning. You could get, you know, Gene Sperling on the phone. But, um, the, you know, but certainly with Bush, um, they really had a kind of a clarity of purpose to say that if we treat access like a commodity and gauge supply very carefully, we can demand an awful lot for its exchange, which is part of what they kind of figured out. You know, Jerry Maserati, who is the, is the New York Times Magazine editor, I hope Jerry doesn't mind telling me telling this story, but he, um, you know, I guess at this point it's a, it's a decade past, but I think early on he was sitting with, uh, with Karen Hughes, and he had an old New York Times Magazine piece. I think it was, I may get it wrong, I think it was a piece they did on Gerald Ford. I, I don't know if John Hershey did it. Somebody, you know, where they just sat with Ford for two, three weeks, fly on the wall, and wrote kind of a signature piece on Ford. And, and Jerry's there with Karen Hughes, saying, well, look, this is, look at this piece, you know, old yellowed New York Times Magazine. And, and this was the defining piece, on the framing piece on Gerald Ford. And, and we're hoping that that would be a, a model for now. 
and, and Karen, according to Jerry's recollection, opened the top you know, drawer of her desk and, and pulled out, I think it was a Time magazine with Bush on the cover. And he had that kind of, you know, that kind of pointing thing. And, uh, you know, amazing what one guy can do with just that one move, that one motion. Um, and, uh, and she said, this cost us uh, 17 minutes. Okay, are we clear then? Jerry's like, wow, that's stunning. She's like, yeah, that's kind of the way it's going to work. Um, you know, I ended up stumbling into a virtuous position with, with the Bush crowd because when I first started out, the first thing I did, as some of you may know, was a piece for Esquire. Uh, I was working on another book. I went officially into Bookland, uh, you know, in 2000 when I left the journal. I had written my first book, A Hope in the Unseen, and I said, I'm just going to do books and, and some freelance. But, you know, it was after 9-11, and um, the... Uh, um, you know, four or five months in, we journalists were going, hmm, this is odd. Uh, you know, we're being accused of disloyalty for just doing the basic thing that we've always done. And I think people were stunned and shocked and not certain what to do. And so the Esquire editor, a buddy of mine named Dave Granger, called up and said, look, I know you're doing a book, but why don't you dive in there? Just, you know, get in the water. Swim a little. It's in a unique time. And I said, yeah, you're right. And so I... Uh, I, you know, went over to the Bush White House. I had to do a little setup, and my pitch was that basically the president is having some difficulty of what I understand with women voters. Now, Bush at that point in February of 2002 had an 89% approval rating, but it wasn't widely distributed to everyone. And I said, well, I want to do a profile of Karen Hughes because I don't think most people know that the president's right-hand man is a woman. Wouldn't that be a nice profile? And they're like, oh, yeah, sure. You, you need a pitch. Then, now, always. And, uh, and so, you know, they were feeling great hubris at that point. You know, we are giants. And we could use a, a Boswell, you know. And they had read A Hope of the Unseen, that my first book, and it often, there are parts or certain pages where people's eyes well up, and, and it's non-polemical. It, it deals with these issues of race. Uh, in class and opportunity. A kid goes from this blighted high school in Washington, D.C. to Brown University. I follow him across three years. That's the book. So they were confused as to, well, Ron is kind of a fuzzy author guy now. And so they felt I was safe. I mean, this goes to a point that, you know, and Paul O'Neill once said this to me. He said, you know, don't mistake conviction for thoroughness with this gang. All they had to do was just do a search of my Wall Street Journal stories, and they would have known that, you know, that there was teeth in the reporting many, many times. But nonetheless, I went in there, and I did a profile of Hughes, and they gave me a desk in the West Wing. I mean, across from Karen's office. Can you believe that? I mean, you know, people walking by, hey, Carl, hey, Condi, <laughs> nice to see you. <laughs> nice tie, you know. And um, yeah, I was there a lot, and the access was free and full. And I know it's amazing to think about now. But it was an oddity. It was a break in the wall of message. Again, they got, like so many things, they got heady and lost their bearings. And I was the beneficiary of that. And of course, you know, what happened is that uh, Hughes, I'm done with the reporting, I'm writing the story, and Hughes gets, uh, well, she, she resigns 
At which point I make my appeal, as any journalist would, and say, well, wait, wait a second, I've been working months in this story, and the subject just resigned. So that I need at least one shot at all of the key sources one more time. And they're like, okay, well, that, that does make sense. And that's when I went back that last time, and that's when Andy Card, you know, you know, aggrieved about Karen leaving, uh, you know, committed candor and said, you know, my God, you know, the whole balance of the White House will, will be thrown off. You know, Karen has been the beauty to Carl's beast, is what she said. I mean, you wait your whole life for a quote like that. Um, you know, that basically that Rove walks into every meeting with a sharp sword of partisanship and and Hughes figures out a way to beat it into some sort of saleable plowshare. And, um, uh, and he said, you know, I'll need a counterweight to counterweight Carl, you know, or the whole ship will veer. You know, I'll need five people, ten people, you know, 20 people, because that's how much weight I'll need. Right. Well, that caused a bit of havoc in the White House. And the piece came out and you know, the president was aggrieved. My access was cut off at that point. I mean, there was like a restraining order. I couldn't go south of DuPont Circle without a, an armed escort. Um, but the, the serious point about this is that, is that I think it's important for us to recognize that what we do as journalists is in direct, when it works, is in direct opposition to the cult in the pseudoscience of message control, message discipline, and message dissemination. It is. You know, and the difficulty is it's, it's often difficult in the practice of what we do to get around the ever-enveloping net that brings journalists in, providing them access to simply get various versions of message through a variety of mouthpieces which is in so many cases why what we read or see is, is less than what's needed in terms of, of our role and our charge uh, in this special endeavor uh, that we have, uh, have signed on for. You know, and it's, and it's tricky in a, in a town like Washington, but it's, it's no different for reporters at the Wall Street Journal who cover uh, corporations or industries. You know, in some ways, they're not that different than the various sort of boundaries of, of a party or a White House or a political culture. You know, if you, uh, if you uh, violate the code and write something that we feel is grievous, is an affront to our message, the basic model is you will be denied access. And that will be threatened in so many subtle ways prior to that action taking place. And at one point, I had a conversation with, with, uh, with Hal Raines at the Times when I had to do some speech there, and I think it was, um, you know, early, 02-ish. And I said, you know, if somebody essentially gets whacked, if their access is denied, let's say someone covers the White House, you know, it took them years to get that job, you know, and they're out there doing speaking gigs for a couple thousand dollars a pop. You know, and essentially the suggestion is this. If you run that quote that will royal news cycles and make us look bad, we will deny you access. You will be out of the club. And before you do that, you ought to go check with your wife or your husband 
as to how the mortgage payments will be made. That's the underlying bargain. And the fact is, is that newspapers should say, if your access is denied, let's say you're a White House reporter, you're not going to then be you know, relegated to covering the Federal Trade Commission and sorry and see ya. You know, it's a, it's a bonus time. We need to reward you. We need to protect you and we need to defend you. We haven't been very good at that. Access. Got to be careful. You know, I, I think many of you would look at some books written during the Bush era, I won't mention any specifically, in which lots of access was granted. And the conclusions of said books haven't held up well. And this is not something that is specific to party. It's specific to power and how it is exercised in this era. So that is my preaching for today. So let's open it up to some questions and mix it up. Thanks. strikes me that there's a self-inflicted part of this. Uh, it comes about somewhere over the last 30 years, it seems to me, that journalists have become increasingly source-dependent. Mm -hmm. Too often, they, without the source, they almost think there's no story, mm -hmm. uh, which is true some of the time, but often it's not the case. Mm -hmm. Another shift that's occurred. In the 60s, actually, there was a reasonable balance in the coverage of the White House versus Congress in terms of just the way that how much space, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. You know That's right. or time was given to the two institutions. It's just shifted overwhelmingly toward the White House, uh, where access is a really quite different kind of issue than when you're talking about the Congress. Yeah. Right? And, yeah. uh, and those are processes and choices that journalists maybe not consciously day by day made, but over time shifted mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the way that they see the story, the way that they go mm -hmm. about looking at the government and reporting it to the yeah, public. Yeah. I, think it's a, I think it's a very trenchant point. I mean, some folks might want to elaborate on that, but, you know, I, you know, I, I think that, that there's a lot of things that contributed to that source dependency. Uh, one is that um, you know, it deals with very human issues of loyalty and maybe betrayal um, of a person committing what's seen as an error in terms of uh, their embrace of truth in a comment or comments. Um, and it covers a lot of ground that works well and traffics well across um, a media culture that, you know, is driven by image and personality. And, you know, the, the great, you know, the journal we did these, the Times, the Post, the, the great, you know, sort of fact-driven investigative pieces, which I remember from the 80s, certainly, and um, some from the 90s, where you had a team of reporters out there saying, here is what's real. Here's the data. Here is this trend line that is indisputable. Uh, you know, I'm not sure if we ended up doing fewer of those things, because they were expensive and time-consuming, 
certainly there's no shortage of data out there, and a lot of the data has flowed naturally out to the public realm of the internet, where anyone can do their data collection, often not a professional, but often an advocacy group, you know, or, uh, or uh, you know, uh, some group with a specific uh, economic or self-interest. You know, I think what's interesting, though, is that, is that um, many of the big series that they spent a lot of money on, you know, maybe didn't have the legs as they defined legs in terms of, of kaboom and people talking at water coolers and, oh, my God, now I see the world differently. Um, you know, and I'm not sure if that measurement was sound. You know, I think they were looking at a lot of flash and maybe not the stuff beneath it. Uh, uh, you know, because the great pieces, um, you know, that are driven by, you know, just heavy lifting, you know, here is the data, here's what it shows, you know, they're not as noisy upon release often, but they form a kind of foundation for real assessment and analysis and judgments that are crucial to this idea of informed consent and an educated populace. Um, and I have to say that many of them I see these days are not done by journalists. They're done by groups with specific interests who bring that horsepower. Uh, in some cases, you'll get universities doing them. And, uh, and I always, of course, find them obviously more credible. But then again, you've got to look beneath it. Cynthia Crossan years ago wrote a, a, a journal reporter wrote a great book looking at data that is publicly disseminated as judgmental and said, let's get into the weeds. Where does it come from? Who's paying for it? even in a university setting, uh, you know, and I think that's a worthwhile area of investigation. But having said that, you know, obviously I have, uh, have dealt with the source model in my own particular way, where I've bagged sources that had access and credibility and tried to do truth therapy with them as the kind of point to the spear of a book, and then behind it, let the data flow in. Uh, and that way, you're grabbing people and shaking them. I mean, I think Price of Loyalty is a good example. Paul O'Neill, you know, he was, he was God's gift to sourcing. You know, at that point, they had the message machine working pretty darn well by the end of 2003. O'Neill was fired at the beginning of 2003, the last days of 2002, um, and uh, that's what he had no desire to be a protagonist in a book, certainly written by anyone else, me. But you know, you could see he was stunned by what he had seen as Treasury Secretary, and a member of the NSC, and in there every day, and meeting with Bush every other week. And um, I mean, I'll tell you an interesting sort of source story, because, you know, journalists love stories of how sources bend toward the sunlight of embracing truth. But O'Neill, um, you know, I had written another story in Esquire about a guy named John DeUlio, who was the really the first guy who embraced candor from that Bush era. He was head of the faith-based program. And he was really a guy from the academic world. He ran an institute at Penn. And, uh, you know, an interesting character, conservative, Democrat, slash maybe Republican, but, and he was behind that super predator stuff, remember, in the early 90s, that his data seemed to indicate that there were these super predators out in urban America that were unredeemable, you know, and, and recidivist. 
and, and that there was nothing to do but lock them up forever. And this becomes the foundation of all those three strikes you're out, you know, rulings, legislation, and ultimately judicial rulings. Well, Ulio basically halfway, midway through the 90s said, you know, actually the data is not what we thought. Never mind. Which is just unheard of in academe. I mean, you build a whole mountain with your name on it and you, you, you plow it over. So Deulio was an interesting guy, and he got out, and he, he's, he had that famous quote. He had, he had actually reviewed A Hope in the Unseen for the New Republic. I didn't know him, but we knew each other through the book, and I got him on the phone. He'd been out about a year, and he just was like a man who was in desperate need of confession. I could tell immediately. It's like he had a giant lump in his throat. Oh, God. I haven't talked to anyone, but I... But Oh, Jesus. I'm like, okay, well, this is good. Could be good. So let's just sit and relax. And I'm on the phone with him. We're not face to face. And he just started to go. And he said, you know, he said, there's no precedent in any modern White House for what we've got here. There's no policy apparatus. Again, which happens when you're focusing on message and perception so strongly. What happens is the policy arm starts to wither. Why, why is it even there? Why do you need a right answer? We got our answer. It's what works out there. Get the right words. And so, and Julie says, look, I'm in meetings, and it's, it's like kids on big wheels. They're getting Medicare and Medicaid mixed up. I'm like, I could get you some, someone to help you with that. <laughs> yeah, and he said, it, it's, and, and what happens is, is that with the policy arms, the policy vacuum, the political arm races in, and then he pauses. He says, and, and that's Carl and company. They just... They f nature abhors a vacuum, and, and, the, and it's the reign of the, of the Mayberry Machiavelli. I'm like, wow, wait, Jesus. So at that point, we pause, and he says, oh, gosh, well, that, that felt great. <laughs> he didn't say that, but that, that was the exhalation as I read it. And uh, he says, can we, can we make all this uh, off, off, off the record? <laughs> I'm like, I kind of kind of can't do that, you know, I have a bathtub full of notebooks at this point, and, you know, I said, but what I'll do, John, is I will get other people in the White House, this is source management, this is how to get around message, I said, I will do what I would call a, a quote replacement therapy, all right, for you, I'll have other people talk about these issues and see if they can provide quotes as fiery as yours, and I bet there are some, I got a little list of names, okay, well, then Dulio sees me about a month later at a Manhattan Institute thing in Washington, and he, um, he's a big, tough guy. And, uh, you know, kind of a real American Pygmalion, came apart in Philly, but then, of course, he gets into academia. James Q. Wilson is the best graduate student he ever had. He's a professor at Princeton at 33. But, you know, again, a guy who prides himself on not backing down. And says, you know, I know what I said, but, you know, just make no mistake. This, what I said to you should, should be all on the record. I said, okay. He said, that's courageous because you know what you said, and they're not going to be happy, you know. Then about a, a week later, I get a, uh, his assistant called, says, John, has something to send you. And then he sends me a 3,000-word memo explaining his quotes including the Mayberry Machiavelli. Now, this is just repertorial heaven here. It's in his own words. I mean, we called it the manifesto, is what it was called later, because I just broke it up and chopped it up into chunks. Uh, the 8,000, 9,000 word Esquire piece, 3,000 of them basically were John's, you know, excerpts. 
right before, <laughs> this story ends in about two minutes, but trust me, it's got a great finale. And um, <laughs> so right before the piece came out, again, how do you get around message? You know, you got to think strategically, almost as strategically as the other team. Well, Dulio, I said, look, the piece is coming out uh, on Monday. It was Friday, I guess. And, uh, you know, he knew what was in it at that point. He said, you know, I, I've thought a lot about this, and, and I think um, presidents I've studied, um, they, uh, they sometimes get a little a bit aggrieved at the start when something like this happens, but eventually they come around and, and say uh, that was a, a thing that was consequential in a good way. And, and ultimately, I think Reagan probably would have said that about Stockman later. He never really took Stockman to the woodshed. That was all fluff. Uh, he ended up basically admitting that what Stockman said was sound and helped Reagan change course. I think that's what John was thinking about. But, but Bush was not Reagan. Make no mistake, very different. And so, so that was Friday, and Monday the piece comes out, and it's just an explosion. And I did a... Um, uh, the White House uh, sent out uh, something in the morning um, attacking it. Uh, and then at the noon press briefing, Ari Fleischer, oh, it was, you know, at that point the Washington Press Corps was starved of access, and it was the Dickensian moment. You know, everyone with their bowls out. You know, well, you know this Susquehanna star, what do you, what's, you know, what's happening? What does he say? What does it mean? And Fleischer says, you know, um, all we'll say is John Dulio's comments are baseless and groundless, and that's all we're going to say about it. No other comments. Um, I did the Judy Woodruff, the CNN show at four, and then I went back into the little green room, and I had like 30 messages on my phone from just that 15 minutes, because the White House had sent out uh, that during the day, but, but at four o'clock, Penn, University of Pennsylvania, where Dulio had returned to, sent out a statement, essentially from Dulio himself, saying, John DeUlio deeply regrets, profoundly regrets, his indiscretions of speaking publicly. He believes his own comments were baseless and groundless. The same phrase. His own, his own experiences? Were, and he will never again speak about his short tenure in, in the White House. And he will now retreat to a private ministry in the, in the streets or something. And so... Uh, now, of course, this is this moment where the teeth of power are bared, and people noticed. You know, Maureen and others wrote columns. You know, what did they do to Dulio? Is he in Guantanamo with broken thumbs? What is it? And, uh, and of course, that kept the story alive in ways that I'm sure they didn't like. And, uh, and so I saw O'Neill, Paul O'Neill was fired as Treasury Secretary that week, same week. Three weeks later, he's officially out, and he's speaking at the Sulgrave Club, which is this a woman's club in Washington. My wife's a member, and, uh, and she had this little flyer saying the Sulgrave Club speaker series, Paul O'Neill is speaking, and I'm like, that's impossible. He's in the witness relocation program. He's not speaking anywhere on the planet. She's like, well, it's tomorrow night. You can call. It's a phone call. So I called up, and I said, can husbands go without their wives? Oh, sure, yeah. The fence is lousy with the guys. They're all coming. So I go to the thing, and it's really a heartening moment. And that's why I tell you this story. It's one that makes my eyes well up now, even many years later. And, and uh, 
you know, of course, you know, I'm dressed wrong. You know, it's, you know, it's all these guys have been running Washington for the last 40 years, you know, and they're all, you know, older. The membership's older. They're all these tall, white-haired guys in these blue Brooks Brothers suits, and I wear like a plaid blazer or something. You think I'm parking cars or something. And, and I see O'Neill at the center of this, of this grove of sequoias. You know, he's about my height. They're kind of muscling. And it's the two of us. And he goes, so you're, you're a Susskind. How, how did you get in here? I said, well, my wife's a member. Oh, yeah. And the Washington Post had done a profile of me where my picture ran, which is not that common. So Neil's like, I, I, the, you did that Dulio thing. Yeah. Oh, boy. I've been thinking a lot about that. You know, about well, what that means for me. You know. Do I just spend the rest of my life in some sub-basement of the message department, muzzled or what? I don't know. But I thought a lot, Ron, about Dulio. You know, he's a young guy like you. And, um, you know, and, and this crowd, um, I've known many of them. I've been in a lot of White Houses, but this crowd is tactically forceful and nasty in ways that are uncommon. I've never seen it. And I guess Deulio had to make a tough decision. Could he afford a 40 or 50 year battle with them? Could he afford that personally and professionally? And I guess he decided he couldn't, so, so he pled for mercy. And then O'Neill, has, Paul O'Neill has this funny gaze aversion sometimes when he's thinking deeply. I didn't realize at that point where he looks away from me at the wall and I, I figure we're done, I'm about to leave. And he turns to me and says, no, no, Here's the difference. You see, uh, I'm an old guy, and, uh, and I'm really rich. <laughs> so that there's, there's nothing that they can do uh, to hurt me. Okay. And, Louis, this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. <laughs> I have two letters of transit from Casablanca. So... I basically at that point gave O'Neill A Hope in the Unseen, the first book. O'Neill is notoriously thorough. He read it the next day, read everything I'd ever written. And then uh, we decided to meet. Um, he, uh, and he had a place at the Watergate. Big giant cafe. Rich man. He was the Alcoa CEO, so he's worth about $100 plus million. So I go over there, and we just sat for three breakfasts, give or take, and just talked. Nothing too product-oriented. I just get to know you about books we liked and our lives and what was important. And, um, and then he said, you know, I read that book about the kid, you know, tough African-American kid, dad in jail, mom wants on welfare, goes to Brown University, a big, long American saga. Um, there were no access issues there. There were no issues of him not telling me what was in his heart because someone, his boss, said, you've got to stick to script. And he says, you know, can I, uh, the kid's name is Cedric, he says, could I, could I be like Cedric? I said, yeah, <laughs> we can work that out. <laughs> but you're going to have to engage in an experiment in transparency which goes directly against the models of how power is exercised in this era. 
He's like, no, no, I'm, a, I'm actually a kind of a, more of a transparency guy than you may know. And he told me about his time at Alcoa, which actually I kind of knew a little about, where O'Neill was sort of this, he's a, he was a poor kid, the poorest rich guy you ever met. He grew up in, with no indoor plumbing. Um, and, uh, and so he, um, he was not uh, buffaloed by credential or by folks with fancy degrees. And, and he turned Alcoa into a cube farm in 1988. You know, everyone is out of offices, you know, best idea wins, that kind of thing. And he's like, no, no, I'm a believer in that. And uh, so what do we do? I said, well, I need your schedule. And so he's like, okay. And he gives me a disc next day with uh, 7,630 entries. Every meeting, every phone call. Who called whom? Who met with whom? Subject? Right there. Two years as Treasury Secretary. And of course, you know, I'm just passing out with joy. But as you, all of you know, reporters, you are never satisfied. And I say, now, before each one of these meetings, there's a little pile of memos, documents, right? Briefing materials. It's like, yep. And after two, as to what we said. Where are all that, those now? <laughs> so all they're back at the Treasury Department. I say, that's a problem. Yeah, that's a problem, I think. Yeah. I said, well, let me check on what you're entitled to as a Treasury Secretary. Well, that'd be great. So I called up some Bigfoot Washington lawyer types that I knew. This guy actually named Tom Green, who was one of these, did Watergate and the Rand Contra. Great guy. And I said, you know, Tom, what's uh, O'Neill entitled to get his hands? Oh, Ronnie, you know, he's an older guy. You know, he's, it's, they're like mini presidents. You know, these cabinet guys. Anything not stamp classified, he, he should get a copy of. You know, geez, Jim, Jim Baker's got 40 boxes in his damn garage. I said, okay. I call Paul back. And I tell him, Jim Baker's got 40 boxes in his damn garage. He's like, okay, well, let me check on that. Well, Neil goes back to his life. He calls me in a couple weeks. He was over at the Treasury Department doing, basically giving career advice to other people who were leaving. And uh, he said, uh, and I told uh, David Offhauser, the general counsel, what Tom Green said. And, uh, and, of course, Offhauser knew Green. He says, well, if Green says it, he's kind of best of breed. I'll check it out, though, yeah. And, uh, and O'Neill says, and I got something for you. And I said, really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I said, well, where are you right this second? I'll run there barefoot, if need be. So I have to, I have to go back to Pittsburgh. Uh, I'm driving back in about an hour. But, but I will leave these, uh, this little package for you. I swear I'm not making this up. I'll leave it with the security guard at the Watergate. That's right. 30 years, we're right back. Bingo, full circle. And, nice, and I went there, nice big African-American guy, and uh, he had uh, discs with 19,000 documents. Um, and uh, I, he gave them to me, and I, I said, uh, thank you. He said, God bless you. And I, I said, God bless you, too. And at that point, I was ready to embrace Jesus as my personal savior. And, um, and I hired an assistant, and that's why that book happened. This is hopeful. People in the mix. Sources, well, they're public servants. Even inside of companies. They're adults. The whole concept of message management is to treat them like children. You read off the script. You follow the playbook. And of course, very popular sort of Republican theology is that we come up with the playbook. You can argue then. But once the game starts, 
everyone sticks to the playbook or we score no touchdowns. It's sensible. But the fact is, people want to be treated as grown-ups based on their acquired insights and their earned wisdom in many cases. And that's good for us. And if you find one of them and you get them to talk to you, many of the powers that be in American life now will be deeply aggrieved and may come after you personally. We'll try to cut off access. We'll do everything they can to discredit you. That shows you've done something right. Sorry, that was a long answer, but it was such a damn nice story. Go ahead. I'm sorry. How is Cedric Jennings doing? He's doing, and yeah. What surprised you the most about the course of his life? Oh, that's a great question. Okay, so Cedric is uh, the first. Uh, Cedric is doing great. Uh, he's the kid that I see in the blighted D.C. high school. Um, and... You know, it's interesting, the genesis of that story was that I have this buddy, Tony Horowitz, who is a great writer, author, guy, and we were roommates at Columbia together, and he had just come back from Bosnia and, um, and was uh, the other national affairs guy for the journal. And, you know, Tony was talking about the incredible capacity of children, a story he wrote to show hope when there's no reason for it. And I said, that was a great story, T, it really was. And, Maybe there's stories like that to write in America. And I said, you know, the fact is to learn in the war zone environment, such that exists across our town here in Washington and southeast, uh, is a kind of feat of hope. It's, if we found a, a, a kid, uh, um, you know, it's like a kid in Bosnia finding a calculus book in the street and learning calculus. We find a kid like that, we roll a red carpet from Harvard to the former Yugoslavia to get the kid. But because it's an inner-city African-American or a Latino-American kid from the so-called other America, we say, well, there's this meritocracy. It's complicated. What are your SAT scores? I'm like, what's that all about? How do we get there? That difference, that distinction. So I go to the worst high school I can find, and it's in Southeast, and I'm looking at the kids. Now, interestingly, a, a repertorial dilemma is that all of the top students uh, are all undercover. That's the way it worked. You know, in this environment, as the principal explained to me, scholarship is no honor. As he said to me, as it was, he said, I'm just guessing at the Lily White Suburban High School you went to, Susky. So, you know, I mean, the fact is, 16-year-old boys can't imagine what 19 looks like here. You know, so you don't want to be saying, I'm out of here because I'm the good kid. It'll get a target put in your back. That's insane here. So, of course, all my subjects were kids with blinders on, some of whom would get answers wrong on a test so it wouldn't get stuck up on the bulletin board. And so the reporting wasn't going very well. You know, I had about three weeks there with the 82 kids out of 1,400 who had a B average or better. Again, classic reporting. I'm in a little cinder block room next to the principal's office as they come in one at a time. You're not getting much. You know, the uh-huhs and the nahs. And at one point, a kid, like halfway through, I said, you want to go to college? Uh-huh, you have any friends? Nuh-uh. He says, what, are you here to be my savior? And I said, I'm, I'm Jewish. We don't do saviors. And uh, <laughs> this is the only laugh I get in like two weeks. This is it's really going badly. And I come out of the office, and I say to the principal, this is a train wreck. These kids won't tell me anything. He says, well, they're undercover, Susskind. 
Now, you wouldn't have believed it if I told you right off. You had to learn it on your own. See, I didn't go to those fancy colleges like you did. And you don't believe people like me know anything. And I said, all right, all right, all right. So, so I guess I'm done. Yeah, I guess you are. Literally, at this moment, a kid walks into the principal's office and kind of bumps me. He doesn't even look at me. And he points right at the principal. He says, my computer science teacher has a problem with me as a person, not my work. He's giving me an A minus. I deserve an A plus. I'm fighting the grade. I'll be back. He walks out. I'm like, who's that? <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's uh, Cedric Jennings. Uh, but he's, he's nothing but trouble. I said, Je he wasn't in the alphabetical list. He wasn't in the J. I took him off the list. Huh, really? Well, before I return to my side of town, could you just kind of tell me why? Yeah, yeah, sure. He, um, he's got straight A's. You know, maybe our valedictorian. But, you know, he's, he's got a quick tongue. It's one of the problems. He wears those A's like a shining breastplate, shoving it in kids' faces or altercations in the hall after school. It's a train wreck. And it's not just that. It's not, it's not just the, 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 the tongue. The problem is he's, he's, um, he's too damn proud. It's his damn problem. I'm like, huh, proud. Bing, little light goes off. Proud. Pr pr sin of pride? Too, too proud. I was allowed to be proud in 11th grade if I did something right. So where's, uh, where would Cedric be now? Well, he's up in chemistry. Uh, I said, okay. I said, before I go back, um, it's a long drive to northwest Washington, can I get a hall pass to go to the boys' room? And he writes me a pass. <laughs> and I did go to the boys' room where I actually talked to the head of the biggest gang at the school. That's where he runs his operations out of that room. Uh, and then I went up to chemistry and I saw Cedric. And he was having an altercation with a kid who was copying his homework. And uh, he said, I, you know, I didn't stay up half the night doing the homework for you to copy my damn homework. And of course, you know, every dogma creates its own heretics. The dogma of lay low, being conspicuous. Duck. Cedric was the heretic to that dogma. And of course, it's the heretic who gets put out where Cedric was put out with the Bunsen burners and the beakers, and he and I sat down and talked. And I said, the most important things that I ever said, I think, as a journalist. I said, you know, I, I'm going to confess some things to you, Cedric. I said, uh, you know, I get paid for my knowingness, for my omniscience, even when I fake it, and I have to. We all do. Give me any subject, I'm an expert in two weeks. And you won't even see the seams as I stitch it together for the front page of the journal. You know, but I find that I've stopped learning and growing. You know, I've gotten too good at that. And, and I just, I need to, I need your help. If, if, you know, if you can just show me what it feels like to walk in your shoes for, for a day, an hour, then maybe I'll learn something to get outside of these bunker-to-bunker -bunker debates that just kill us. And I'll, I'll know what it feels like to, to be like you, because I'm not like you. Now, Cedric is unconvinced by this. He's like, I'm going to teach you. OK, OK. So where'd you go to college? As I went to University of Virginia. That's good. Good. Graduate school? Col Columbia. 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 OK. <laughs> you, you guys do teaching sometimes. You do any teaching? Is it? Yeah, it's a little uh, up, up in 
Cambridge. Harvard! You teach at Harvard, and I'm teaching you what? Forget it. This is a scam. I'm at it. He walks out. I chase him down the hall. I'm desperate. I, say, I want to say, you know, this notion you have of this meritocracy, it's not all you think. And it's hard to explain. I mean, Cedric's got a, got a sweatshirt in his closet, a Harvard sweatshirt that he will not put in his body because he does not feel he is worthy of it. He believes in our meritocracy, as so many of these kids do, secretly. The one that is cast them aside. And so we become a team. I say, look, look, he's parched with solitude. He cannot resist my entreaties. I say, look, look, let me just follow you around. I'll be 20 feet behind you. Now, no one will know we know each other. It's like, that's good, because in case you haven't noticed, you're white. That's a big problem for me. I said, yeah, I'm getting that. And then, and then I'll just listen. And at night, I'll call you, like tonight. And you can explain what I saw. How about that? I don't know. I said, well, how about tonight? Well, I'm doing homework to about 11. I said, I'll call you at 11.01. He said, I may pick up, I may not. Gone. I called him at 11.01. And he said, all right, all right. Here's what you saw. Here's what it meant. Here's what's going on. James is an issue, and here's my problem. And I built up this bathtub full of notebooks, and off we went. Now, we've been together, Cedric and I, since for 17 years. He is 32 now, almost 33. And he... um, he, of course, went to Brown with his 960 combined SAT score, 400 points below the Brown mean. You know, I mean, the thing is, is that Cedric has muscles that are classic American muscles. You know, faith, will, adrenaline, survival, born of, of, of real need. And those are muscles that well, it's not the thing you can learn in books. The Western canon, though, that is in books. So once he got exposed to that, it took him a little while, he kind of got up to speed. You know, he got there, he didn't know who Hemingway was or Churchill or Sylvia Plath. But by junior year, he was starting to pick up speed. So he graduates from Brown with a 3-3 average, double major, gets a master's in education from Harvard, Gets another master's from Michigan in social work. Goes back to the District of Columbia, even though he was offered jobs by investment banks. Imagine him at Goldman Sachs. That would have been quite a... And, uh, and he ended up doing that for years. And, uh, and then he is... He, about two years ago, he started an internship program uh, for kids from his old neighborhood and others uh, to um, get exposed. He had a joke. We had a joke together. He says, you know, I just wasn't exposed to the way the bigger playbook worked. I never saw that. You know, you met people. You were okay and nice to them. You built degrees. You built credibility. I, I, I didn't know how that worked. Now he's, of course, a champion of that. So he's doing fine. Still single, you know, having an interesting life. Um, his mom's doing fine, too. Still at the church. Um, and it's an American family. In a, in a way as important as, as any American family because of their, their journey and the consequences of, of how it goes for them. You know, I joke around that in some ways Cedric is closer to my great-grandfather who comes here on a boat from Russia or Poland, we're not sure, depending on the year, and, uh, 
and believes in this notion of up ahead, this unseen. Um, and I think that's a, a, a narrative that, that brings people uh, closer to something that is real and truthful, not message. We have time for one more, one more question. Okay. Thank you. Hi. Um, first, um, to thank you again for such a fascinating presentation. Um, so I'm a fellow at the Belfair Center working on the Future of Diplomacy project. Mm. And I'd like to take my question a little out of the U.S. context. Yeah. Um, I want to pick up on the phrase uh, that you used, um, managed um, messages. And I'd like to respond with an alliteration in kind. Mm -hmm. From our part of the world, in Southeast Asia, that's where I come from, mm. where we use the word responsible reporting. <laughs> and um, I think we can all argue about what that means, but just to distill the point being that it would be essentially for journalists getting the message out that authorities want to hear, be it in the name of um, security or stability or whatever you may have it. Mm. And um, my question is, what sort of message would you give journalists to journalists, well, for journalists working within that context where um, freedom of speech or writing is not necessarily a given or always a number one priority, um, and, and working in that sort of environment is seen mm -hmm. as, a, you know, as a fact? Well, you know, actually, I think working in that sort of environment is not as different as it might have been to America 20 or 30 years ago. Because in some ways, the cult of message and the, the, the avenues and exercise of message is, there's similarities everywhere. You know, what I would say is what I think works here is to get into discussions with folks who have consequential positions uh, or individuals that may be anonymous that are affected by the actions of those in power and, and go... Um, into uh, the broadest possible framing of the human journey as it attaches to the thing they do. They're often quite, um, you know, willing um, and um, surprisingly sometimes unguarded if you change the conversation into something more fundamental than this thing they're selling and say, well, why are you here? What are the principles you may have learned in college or graduate school? How do those principles apply to, to this great experiment of your democracy or, or ours? Um, and, you know, what's interesting, I find that if, if you're not impatient, and sometimes it's hard for the Daily Reporter because they need to file a story, but even for the Daily Reporter, and I used to do this with the journal, we do this sort of reporting strategy, but a lot of it, it's not just, you know, tactics. It's a broader concept of how you get people to embrace truths that they have within them, that often they, they not only entertain but cherish. And for ma in many cases, they cannot speak in daylight. You know, what is the thing that brings you to this place as a public servant? What is the notion of informed consent? What, and I do a thing periodically where I talk to them after we go a while, uh, where I say, you know, you know, whomever you are, I say, you know, you, you got to trust truth here. Oh, and they go, ha, what are you, crazy? Trust truth? That's, no, one, no one does that. We say, well, let's think about it. You know, truth is what works in any part of your life that still works, right? If there are any. You know, your relationship to your, your husband or your, or your wife, to your friends, maybe to your boss or the person you have under you, you got to trust it. It can work here, and it'll be yours.
You won't have to think about what you said. And it's messy and it's hard to control. But the fact is it has a kind of energy that often creates extraordinary outcomes and people tend to bend toward it. You know, maybe against their will in some cases. You know, can we manage to find a way where you can trust truth? And that's a conversation that's very personal. And, and uh, I have very personal conversations with these many sources. You know, they're not evil. They're not craven. They're often people in a, in a bit of a bind. They're like, I didn't think it'd be like this. You know, I dreamed about the day I could have a job with effect, or I could do something. I didn't think it would be so narrow. I'm like, well, let's think about ways you can feel more like the person you hope to be. It's very personal. And, and I want to encourage journalists, just in closing, to say, you know, I'm not a big believer that there's anything that really distinguishes us fundamentally. You know, The Hope in the Unseen, that book is essentially Cedric and, you know, this inner city black kid and me, a lumpy middle-aged Jewish guy, you know, is, you know, finding so much that is shared. You know, and, and I think the key is to recognize that the people you sit with are exactly like you in every essential way. And look for those parts of the shared and you can really be surprised. And at day's end, this extraordinary notion of the informed populace, of people who know what is real and then can act accordingly in their own time, in present tense, you know, is nourished by that, by that extraordinary connection. So that's why even sitting around looking at the often jumbled, undernourished messages that cross our life every day just like a river of garbage, I am still hopeful that, uh, that what we do, even with the economic issues facing journalism, uh, will always be at the center in some fashion, in some imputation of what makes this country uh, and many countries uh, they're very, uh, very best. So, so thanks.